0: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Welcome to the New Books Network, and today's episode focuses on Buddhist philosophy. My name is Yakir Englender, your host today. How should we live? How should we prepare for our death? These kinds of questions are asked again and again by different cultures, religious, and mystical traditions. The questions are the same, but the answers bring us different colors and ways how to touch life. In his book, Reading of Dogen's Treasury of the True Dharma Eye, Professor Stephen Ayn, invites the readers into the unique philosophy and way of living of Dogen, the founder of the Soto Zen Buddhist sect in Japan. In the interview, we will delve into the importance of walking with questions without having clear answers, about ways how we actually choose many times to live with death, how to be a teacher, how to be a student, and many more. Professor Hain is Professor of Religious Studies and History and the Director of Asian Studies at Florida International University. My first question to you? Yes. Great. Um, so, Stephen, can you please share with us a little bit about your religious or spiritual background and what have made you to go and do research um, on Dogen?
2: Okay. Thank you for that question. Uh, I went to uh, high school and college in the uh, 1960s. So this was a very uh, exciting but turbulent era. And um, it got many of us interested for various reasons in uh, looking at Asian philosophy. I think somehow the conflict with uh, Vietnam and an Asian country stimulated an interest in exploring Asian culture and philosophy, what, what's really going on in Asia. And um, of course, um that trend, um, had been building up, uh, with, uh, the beat, uh, literature and poetry and music, uh, John Cage and, uh, many, uh, references to, uh, Buddhism, especially Zen Buddhism, uh, were emerging into, uh, the culture. So I got very intrigued. Um, my own personal background, uh, was that I was raised in a, uh, uh, Jewish, uh, synagogue from the, uh, Sephardic, uh, tradition. And, um... It was um, an Orthodox uh, uh, training that I had for my bar mitzvah, so we focused very uh, carefully on uh, uh, reading uh, an ancient uh, scripture and um, trying to um, understand, um, you know, kind of very distant uh, language and and its uh, meaning and relevance in today's uh, world. And I kind of, uh, over the years, I feel like I've transferred some of that interest and some of those skills into now applying this to uh Japanese and uh medieval Japanese, which is a very different kind of language than modern Japanese. So it's a little bit like uh, I, I compare it to Chaucer in English, where um uh readers today don't read Chaucer in the original, which is more like French than um than English. Uh they read a, a right. kind of modern translation. And uh for Dogen, and especially this book Shobokenzo, um Japanese readers um can't read the original because it's more like Chinese than Japanese. So they read a, a kind of paraphrase or an adaption to, into modern um, vernacular.
1: And so let's, um, let's go and, and into the book. Can you share with us a little bit about Dogen? I also, I, I we also um, learned that today your new book uh, was published. So Masalto of of Relation. Um can you share with us about him, about his philosophy, poetry?
2: Yes. Um, Dogen uh lived in an exciting time of his own um it was uh, he was born in 1200 that was just as Je- Japanese society was changing from the aristocracy to the samurai rule and there was uh, much upheaval and conflict and civil war uh but it also triggered um several new Buddhist uh, schools that developed and put a, a strong emphasis on individual salvation or gaining enlightenment for yourself rather than a kind of ritualistic process of devotion. And so Dogen was um, at the forefront of that trend. Um, He also was one of the first monks of his era to travel to China, which um, was um, cut off from um, travel for several centuries in Japan for various political reasons, but it was opening up again. And so he was at a big turning point in Japanese history, um, political and cultural. And then he also was able to go to china Um, his writings about china are very unique because he saw it as an outsider and he was able to give his impressions which are still being studied for that purpose but then he comes back to japan after four years and he has a whole different view of of buddhist uh training and meditation that he was introducing kind of single-handedly uh to japan and so he he was pivotal in several different regards, and I think that's why he has an enduring uh, power of language and ideas.
1: Can you, can you um, also um, share with us a little bit uh, the differences between um, in that time, between the philosophy or the Buddhist philosophy in Japan... And the, the, the philosophy, Buddhist philosophy in China, because the interesting of that, of the changes, right, that he right. was traveling made him someone who his philosophy and he um, is becoming um, a combination of both of them. Can you share maybe by one example or two uh, about these differences?
2: Yes. Well, um Many people are familiar with the term uh, Zen Buddhism. Um, That's the Japanese pronunciation. The Chinese pronunciation is Chan. So uh, when Dogen um, arrived in um, China, uh, the Japanese society had not really heard about Zen yet. And he wasn't too sure about himself. He was kind of a pilgrim, a lone pilgrim trying to discover true Buddhism. And then when he gets to China, he realizes hey, they had been uh, practicing Zen for several hundred years. The Japanese were behind the curve. They hadn't kept up with that development because travel mm-hmm. had been restricted. So all of a sudden, um, you know, the main thing is he's saying meditation. And he has an idea that just sit in meditation purposelessly. In other words, not as an instrument for something else. But um, it's not like you meditate for 24-7 You um, for Dogen. You bring the meditative attitude to every other um, part of your activities, whether it's uh, cleaning or washing or sweeping up, or whether it's uh, discussing philosophy or reading scriptures.
1: Thank you. So I, I'm just I'm going to 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 jump in. Um, in page one hundred and eighty-one, you bring um, Dogen daily meditation schedule. I love it. I will tell you why. I grew up in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. So many of my years were um, studying in the yeshiva, and yeah. uh, which is the institute, right? And I yeah. try to see the differences and the, um, the similarities. So for sure, he woke up much earlier than any <laughs> Jewish yeshiva students that I met in my life. At 5.30 to 6.30, you have a walking zanzan. After the chores, before breakfast, mornings, and then it's a full day. Yeah, I wonder, Stephen. Can you explain us a little bit? Like, was it by definition they wanted them to be dedicated to to a unique way of life, or or I, I was maybe I will ask it in a in a not very wise way. Yeah. When did they live? When when they did life? when they met with people, when they enjoy, so they will have experience to meditate about.
2: Right. Well, yes. Uh, so yeah, there are a lot of interesting issues there because Zen is known for emphasizing spiritual freedom and individual creativity. And yet you're dictated to by this overwhelming sense of a schedule and itinerary that you have to keep up with every single day. And how do you get away from that? Um, But I think, you know, one of the features of um, Asian spirituality, especially in Japan, is that the discipline um, gives you the freedom, in a sense. Um, So rather than conflicting, they complement one another. Uh, But, um, you know, it's hard for us to tell exactly the uh, lifestyle that they had based on reading these schedules, because those are words on paper, and we don't know exactly how they enacted it. But we do see that it it is carried on today. There was a very interesting uh, book by a Japanese uh, salary man, what they call as a kind of a typical uh, businessman who in his, 19, in his uh, 30s decided uh, he was going to join Dogen's temple, which is still up in the mountains and still has that very rigorous medieval lifestyle. He wrote a book um, that's translated into English called Eat, um, Slip, Sit, Sleep. And that's what you do. You sleep, but only for a few hours. You wake up, you meditate, you eat, you do chores, you eat a little bit more, you study, you meditate more, more chores. Um, there's always been a big debate in Buddhism whether you eat two or three meals a day, but the, the, the main point is that whatever you're doing, and um, you can still see this at Dogen's temple, if it's sweeping floors, the monks are dedicated to that action. If it's uh, cleaning uh, in, in the kitchen or cooking food, They're dedicated to that. So Dogen's idea was that whatever you do from the most uh, trivial and mundane task to something very exotic, like discussing uh, high-minded philosophy, you do it with the same dignified attitude and sense of concentration. So I think that's what's very interesting in today's world that uh, people are trying to um, emulate. So um, I'm not a Zen practitioner myself um at this point because i consider my scholarship um to be a kind of spiritual practice and it's it, mm-hmm. and to go back to the jewish tradition it's kind of a talmudic uh approach you know I, so i wake up every day at, at four o'clock and i read over the dogens text and i get to my computer and i and i start writing i mean i've been doing this for many years now and in a way it's kind of almost a monastic lifestyle but i, I you know i don't actually practice in the monastery but I do find that that sense of uh, focus and concentration. So people say, um, well, how do you publish so many books? And you know, how do you stay so um, active with your scholarship and now that I'm an old 70 years old? Not so, it's not such an old age these days. But, but, um, but I think that um, uh, you know, what, what we can all learn from Dogen and why people are interested in Dogen is that focus, concentration, whatever the activity is. Sounds simple, but it takes many years to develop, polish, cultivate that that approach
1: for sure for sure so this brings me to the next question about leadership um when we think about religious or spiritual leadership we are thinking about we we see um in in different christian tradition and jewish traditions um different types of leadership you have these people who dedicate the, their life constantly to be you know with the divine and their their life in a way is a constant meditation Mm-hmm. Then you have these leaders, um, that are in a way, and I do quotation force to live amongst the people in order to serve them, like to, to, you know, to give the solution for life. Right. In the philosophy of dogen which kind of leaderships he tried to create for him, for the community with his students?
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting uh, question because, um, uh, Zen is known for being a, a very reclusive uh, tradition, uh, uh, up in the mountains, away from secular society and all the distractions. Mm-hmm. However, yeah. one thing Dogen saw when he went to uh, China um, in the early twelve hundreds, um, and Chinese society at that time was uh, very advanced in terms of uh, literary, musical, artistic, and intellectual endeavors. And so, if it, you know, if you were from a certain cl- uh, uh, aristocratic class or um, uh, intellectual class in, in in China, you weren't just trained as a philosopher or a religious mm. uh, thinker. You also played uh, musical instruments. Um, you know, you could, you, you knew poetry so well and they had very complicated rhyme schemes and pattern, tonal patterns that you could, you know, recite it at, at you could kind of compose it on the spot. And it was this uh, very um, deep aesthetic and spiritual life that was being led, not in the mountains, but in the cities and interacting with um, people that were not, um, you know, were referred to as the literati or scholar officials. They they often had government jobs. They were well-educated. They were interested in all these ideas, but they didn't necessarily practice in the monastery. So, there was a lot of give and take in that regard, and and Dogen saw that some of the Chinese teachers were um, ha- had uh, female students, which was you know very uh, kind of um, modernistic development at that time in the eleven and twelve hundreds, and um, also um, talked with uh, many um, you know lay followers from ordinary society. Now, when Dogen came back to Japan, he lived nice. in uh, Kyoto, in the capital at the time, um, for the first 10 years, um, when he was in Japan, when he returned to Japan and he, he was also interacting with samurai, with women, with uh, non monastic followers. But then at a certain point in his life, he made the decision to go to the mountains and, and mm. be totally reclusive. There's a lot of discussion about why that decision got made, but we see those two kind of halves of Dogen's Teaching mission: one in the city, in the sophisticated, diverse, cosmopolitan city life, and one uh, secluded in the magnificent uh, mountains of northern Japan.
1: Fascinating, fascinating, and it's lead me to the next question. Um, in chapter five, you touch in on on the um, sensitivity and the complication between life and death. And if it's okay, I would love to read. Um, a few lines from Gauguin in page 133. Okay. And he says like that. 65 instances occur when someone snapped their fingers, during which the five aggregates of human existence come into being and perish. Unawakened people who are unaware of this think that moments of time are as uncountable as the sense of the Genghis, but they do not realize that there are actually as many as 6,400,099,980 instant transpiring within one day and night when the five aggregates are continually coming into existence and perish it's a whole new way to think about what does it mean to be alive and what does it mean in a way to kill life, right? I mean, it's a question of, of being aware. Can you, can you elaborate for us about that?
2: Uh, yeah. Thank you for that question. Very interesting passage. Um, let me put it in historical context first. Um, if, if, if you sum up Dogen's philosophy in one word, you know, I, I always tell my students, Uh, when they're working on a research project, um, your grandmother doesn't have a lot of patience for hearing about your scholarly activity. So sum it up in one sentence, one phrase, one word that would get her interested in. So for Dogen, it's impermanence. And that's what we're reading in this passage. Now, there were two uh, inspirations for him. One was the Buddhist analysis. Actually, the passage you read, he's really quoting Shakyamuni, Buddha's own sayings, from about 1,500 years before Dogen in ancient India. And uh, that's where you get this kind of numerical analysis of, you know, how many instants are there in an instant? You know, if you snap your fingers, how many thoughts go by? How how many, you know, it's not just one, it's multiple. It's hundreds, thousands, millions. But in, in Japan, the attitude was more impressionistic. It was more artistic. Uh, In Japan, the view of impermanence was, uh, you know, and I quote Shakespeare, usually a parting is such sweet sorrow. It's the kind of poignant sadness of things passing away, nostalgia, nothing is ever the same. Dogen was an orphan by the age of seven. And they say when he saw the uh, incense, the smoke from the incense at his mother's uh, funeral, um, he realized like. Time is swift. Time time waits for nobody. Impermanence is everything. So you have to find um, enlightenment in relation to the movement of time, that invariable, um, incessant um, transiency that, that the passage you read speaks to.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: It's so interesting. There is a Jewish uh, Midrash, you know, quotation in the Talmud that says that when God create Adam and Eve on the sixth day, um, so God said, tov meod," that it's very good. And the rabbi are asking, to say that it's good, we understand, you know, God said good about everything that God created. But to say very good about humanity, and the rabbi said good that that humanity was was born very good that there is always a day of death mm-hmm. and and I, I was thinking about this midrash because i think in a way it so beautifully speak with the philosophy of uh, Dogen because of the understanding that time is vanishing is is it's not going to be with us and the opportunities or the way of listening, because this is what I see, and I think your explanation in the book are fascinating to that way, that we need to learn how to listen. So life and death is not only a way of being, but it's a way of living.
2: Yes, right. Death is a way of living, uh, because the uh, it accentuates the importance of the moment. So uh, Dogen wrote a poem with the title, not a moment spent idly in 24 hours. And I think that kind of um, mm-hmm. uh, it sums up the phrase for, for grandma, you know. Uh, um, mm-hmm. the, um, and, and that relates back to the schedule that you talked about, the itinerary where every uh, moment of life is, is, is dictated, but not to create a control that um, is overbearing, but in order to uh, free you from worrying about the time constraints in order to concentrate on each moment. So um, this, is a, this is a view that's not untypical in Buddhism. A lot of Buddhist meditation, uh, what's sometimes called mindfulness meditation, focuses on if you take a step, you're aware of each and every moment and each and every sensation just in that one action. Um, and uh, but, um, and, and that what, that's what comes through in the passage that you read. So Dogen is integrating a lot of different ideas from traditional Buddhism and also from uh, Japanese culture which uh, was particularly attuned to the idea of that um, poignant sorrow and sadness with the passing of things.
1: So one thing that also I I would love if you can um, explain us. In many religious traditions, there is they are asking questions, but also they are giving answers. And one of the big questions is, what do we do in the world? What's the mission of us as living beings? Now, the question is fascinating. It's interesting that each religion comes with many answers, so that we don't have time to stay with a question. I wonder when we come to, to Japanese Buddhism in that time and to Dogen um, himself, how much he asked this question about what is our mission in a way, why we are here, the question of the why, And does he come also to us with answers or does he want us to stay with the question?
2: Mm. Well, um, yeah, I, I like the way uh, you phrased it at the end, stay with the question and staying with the question in itself is, is the kind of answer because the, you know, the, um, Uh, according to uh, a famous modern uh, Western philosopher, the question becomes more questionable the more you probe. So probing itself is kind of the answer. There is no fixed answer. And one thing you find in Dogen, and I I describe this in some passages, is uh, what I call multi-perspectivism. So you have to look at things from all angles. And um, he'll, he'll contradict himself many times. And the only thing you can say is either he's inconsistent or that he's trying to force us to not take anything for granted. So not fall back on stereotypes and assumptions. So that's kind of his message, but how does that relate to society? Which goes back to your earlier question about, um, you know, was there interaction between the reclusive mountain um, uh, uh, discipline that he, he practiced at the monastery and uh, society? Does he have a message for society? That question is, is you know, very much probed today. What would Dogen, uh, do in the world today? And in the Japanese context, um, which has, um, uh, you know, similarities with, uh, America and it has its own, uh, unique aspects, but you face, um, issues of, uh, uh, gender inequality, social discrimination against, um, outcasts and minorities, um, the uh, the legacy of the pre uh, world World War II uh, imperialism and super na- nationalism, and yeah. um, the post war economic bubble, where um, um, you know that was the obsession of everybody in society. It seemed like uh, just success, you know, material success. So how does Dogen relate to all these factors? Why is he still uh, popular in Japan? If you can't read his original writings. Why do people um, still celebrate Dogen? And they do. There's novels written about Dogen. There's manga, comic books written about Dogen. There's was a, uh, recently a Kabuki play, uh, you know, a, a major motion picture that, that is available with uh, English subtitles. Um, so, um, and, and is there a kind of moral message, an ethical message? Um, I think so, the question comes up for many um meditative traditions east and west is um uh, can there be a kind of avoidance of the social implications for the sake of individual meditation which you know you kind of look the other way if there's social problems because you're engrossed in your own meditation and i think um you know we have those are issues that we have to sort out even with Dogen, i'm not going to say that Dogen has all the answers to that but i like i like your approach the question itself is is the um the continual questioning is in itself a kind of answer
1: Thank you so much, I want to move to, to your chapter about um, speaking in silence and, and I would love to read and, and then to get your explanation from page 160. Okay. So Dogen says like that, I've heard it says that according to the Diamond Sutra, pest mind is ungraceable. Present mind is ungraceable and future mind is ungraceable. So where is the mind that you wish to refresh with rice cakes? V- variable priest, if you can answer, I will sell you a rice cake. But if you cannot answer, I will not sell you any rice cakes today. I love how he brings such a deep question And then at the end of the day, it's about rice cake. It's like there is almost humor there. Um, Can you elaborate a little bit more about this grasp of the mind, but also about, I think, the question that I really love that you ask in the chapter is about how we can speak about things that in a way unspeakable. And what is the role of silence in that?
2: Yeah. So, Um, If we refer to Dogen and Zen Buddhism as a a form of mysticism, I think uh, we can say that um, many mystical traditions seem to advocate silence because you cannot name the unnameable. Um, But uh, nobody writes more or says more (laughs) than mystical traditions do about how you can't speak about the unspeakable. So we find this uh, in, in many places that the mystics tend to be the most eloquent poets and authors of re- religious literature in many many traditions, and you know, Dogen fits right in there. So yes, the ultimate truth is perhaps unspeakable. Uh, as soon as we try to define it, we lose it. Um, it's uh, you know, we can't we we can't um, define the um, the look on our face because uh, as soon as we've talked about it, it's it's changed already. So so, but but at the same time, Dogen doesn't want to sit with that. Um, kind of um, uh, counterproductive view of or view of language is counterproductive. He wants to say that embedded in every single word we say, you know, I got a I got a uh, email from a friend of mine who is um, at his end center in in um, in California near where they have the wildfires, and and um, uh, uh, she was writing me like, what does Dogen say about fire <laughs> as, a, as in in relation? Asian, but she wrote like, how are you? You know? And I was just thinking like, well, Dogen doesn't just say, how are you? Because how are you is like, you are part of the reality of the Buddha nature. You know, when you eat this rice cake, you're not just eating a rice cake or talking about a rice cake, but you're partaking of uh, part of the uh, ultimate reality of the, of the Buddha nature that is manifested in all things. So he wants to say that it is basically we discover truth in every form of expression. And even misunderstandings and misconceptions and and deceptions and illusions are always a form of truth. We just are working our way towards it. So one of his uh, phrases is uh, making the right mistake. Life is one mistake after another until we make the right mistake where we have an insight. But that insight is not permanent either. That insight always must be questioned and probed again for more insight.
1: I wonder, and and I'm so happy for this dialogue because I, I I feel comfortable to ask um this question that coming I think from many students who study Buddhism or or practice Buddhism. So, what should we do in life? I mean, I and 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 because in a way, as you said, it's a mistake after mistake. Um, I wonder if Dogen will say the same about. Trees about nature, that they also do mistake after mistake? Or there is something with our reflective being, the fact that as human we have the reflecting being, that in a way made us to to do mistakes, right? Yeah. And then I also wonder, since we are a part of nature, we are part of life, so how should we touch it? How should we touch it but also act in it, how should we touch it and not in a way castrate ourselves only to be passive and to look on life but not being a part of life?
2: Mm. Well, yes. I, I, actually, the question of trees and, and nature and whether there's a kind of consciousness in nature was a big debate in uh, Japanese Buddhism from that era. So if you say all humans are part of the Buddha nature, the all-encompassing Non-dual reality. Um, does that include non-human beings? And if it includes non-human beings, does it include non-living beings? So, okay, maybe trees have a kind of consciousness. How about uh, stones or water? And Dogen would be affirmative about all of it. So, um, one time, uh, but but not with that in a simplistic way. So, um, there was a famous story of a um, Chinese uh, poet <coughs> who. Um, had um, was like the most famous poet in China in the 1100s, and then uh, ran into trouble with the government. Uh, was exiled from the capital and had to spend the last uh, 20 years in exile and some of it in prison. And but continued to write uh, poetry and continued to uh, practice meditation. And uh, one night he sat um, on a um, on a mountaintop, and he had heard his uh, teacher give a sermon about whether. Non-living beings can sense the Buddha nature. And he looked out and he said, "Uh, the colors of the mountains, that's the body of the Buddha. The streams rushing by, that's the tongue of the Buddha preaching to us. How can I put it into words? And Dogen said, well, um, this poet was enlightened when he saw the mountains and rivers, Uh, but actually the mountains and rivers were enlightened when they saw him seeing them. So that mutuality, you know, in, in a way, uh, we don't want to defy common sense, according to Dogen. I think, he, you know, he realizes these are metaphors. These are, you know, analogies. Th- these are um, phrases that we, we use uh, uh, skillfully, hopefully, to, to make a point. But he, he does feel that, um, that you know, um, uh, another metaphor he uses is that um, we can talk about a pearl um, rolling around in a bowl, but we should also talk about how the bowl, which looks stationary, is actually causing the movement of the pearl to roll around. It's, it, it, there's the mutuality, the inseparability of uh, the living and the non-living, the seemingly uh, stable and the uh, uh, transient or unstable forces integrated. And that, it, it's at those pivot points where we see the full context that, mm. that the insight comes through.
1: Thank you. So um, I wonder if we can um, go to the other part of um, go back to, to being silent and, and speaking. And one of the subjects that you're you're touching um, is a question of reciting, reciting sutra and um, reciting and reading them. And I want to, to tell you um, something that came to my mind when I was reading these pages. Um There is a very interesting phenomena um, that sometimes when you will ask me, can you quote this Jewish text? I will tell you, no, I can't, or it will take me a lot of time. But if you will tell me, Yakir, can you sing this text? Because I learned this text as a song, as a prayer. um, I can, of course, recite it. And in a way there is something by when we recite text mm-hmm. that that some in, some rabbi said in the Jewish tradition we want them to become part of your being part of your flesh mm-hmm. um, so what is reciting in dog and philosophy mm.
2: yeah um, th- yeah there's a word that uh, and th- he has a chapter um, on this concept. Um, uh, called uh, reading the uh, sutras or the scriptures or reciting. Uh, it's sometimes translated as reciting. And um, the um, so in, in, in the case of Judaism, you have the uh, Torah and the Talmud. In the case of uh, Buddhism, you have the uh, uh, sutras that, that play this role as scrolls that are stored in a prominent place in the sacred landscape of the uh, monastery, and they're taken out at special times, and the scroll is unrolled and then you read through it. And do you actually read it to study it word for word, or do you recite it from memory? Uh, uh the singing part that you're saying is very beautiful, but does does that mean you lose the meaning and it's just a pure ritual? That's you know, everything has its possible drawback. Um right. so again, I think you know, those
1: sing the meaning, right? Pardon me? It- in, in a way, what we are doing is singing the meaning, yes, which is it's, different it's, than it's, quoting the meaning.
2: Yes. And actually, a friend of mine is, is writing a book now on, on um, uh, singing in Zen. Um, and because that's a tradition that's very much cultivated. And especially in the, in the post-World War II period, they've tried to get um, um, uh, groups of non-monastics, you know, lay practitioners to get involved in the singing because it's something everybody can relate to. Uh, without necessarily having that scholarly background in in the writings. Um, and it's very fascinating because, um, again, this is something that he learned in, in China when people had such a rich intellectual and musical upbringing, and the and the language was very poetic. And, um, you know, what we look at, I mean, one, one of the things I've seen over the years, because I've been very interested in Dogen's poetry, is that when you look at the two-dimensional page where there's a transcription of these ancient, words many of which were originally presented orally and then recorded and then got you know it it got turned into books that we read in a two-dimensional way um they may look like prose because the way they got transcribed but they're actually poetry and of course some japanese scholars are pointing that out and and when you look at it as as poetry and um in, in in pure japanese um there's um they don't use rhyme for poetry. They have other literary devices, but in the Chinese that Dogen is usually working with, they do have rhyme. And so all of a sudden, yeah, it bursts in front of you. And when you hear it that way, it has a whole other other meaning. So reciting is reinforcing. Reciting is remembering. Reciting is kind of uh, memorializing those ancient words and and bringing them to life in a contemporary way. So I think I think there is you know, a richness there that, that you would find in, in also in Judaism and other traditions.
1: And how much he's worried about that the reciting of the text is going to become part of, um, making people not to ask questions that in a way it's going to be a way to repress, um, thoughts, new thoughts.
2: Right. So in this chapter on reading or reciting the sutras, um, he it's very interesting cuz he gives instructions okay if a donor comes to the temple and says i want to support you but i want the sutras uh to be recited um so that you know i can hear these sacred words um of course uh, this is what you do you know um and he gives the instructions so you have a ceremony and you stand in a certain way and you bring out the scrolls and you open them and and then he says And then he turns and he says, yeah, but none of that really makes a lot of sense. Let let me tell you a story. And the story is that um, a donor came to an ancient um, Zen uh, priest at one time and said, please recite the sutras. And he got up from his seat and he walked around in a circle and he said, there, I recited the sutras for you. And then the donor said, I wanted the whole sutras. You only recited half of them. So he she kind of had a comeback (laughs) that was even more insightful. Um, So that that, is that kind of playful, you know, blasphemy in a, in a sense, Uh, blasphemy so that you don't take things too literally. You don't take things on face value. So it's, so at the one hand, you should know and memorize and sing and celebrate the sutras as much as anybody. But at the same time, you're not overly attached to those words and, for Dogen, it's the creativity, creative thinking and expression of the particular teacher that's important. So uh, one of the things he he does in many of his writings is um, he he praises some of his predecessors, including his own teachers. But he also criticizes just about everybody, including his own teacher, because he'll say, well, you know, at that time, he just recited something that everybody knew. You know, what I wanted to hear was like, how do you think about it at this moment? And um, and he, he and sometimes in his sermons, he'll say like he'll, he'll turn to the audience and say, you know what I think about it. And then he'll kind of um, throw his uh, staff down on the ground and walk away or he'll make a circle in the air with his staff um, to say, like, you know, don't be attached to my words either. Each of us has to come forth with our own unique creativity.
1: Wow, thank you. So it brings me to um, to the question of when you read about his life, when you try to understand the person himself, Dogen, how much he was struggling with his philosophy. Um, and 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 I will say to, maybe I will give you an example. One of the master rabbis in the in the mystic in the Jewish mystic tradition of the Hasidut, the Hasidim, the rabbi from Kotsk, he deeply believe in many of the ideas that I think you share. I think also mysticism share. But he also was not sure how much what he understands is true also. Or maybe in a way he is not living the way like life as it should be. How much like he, he was really carrying self inner self-critique. And it comes in his life he wanted he didn't like when the students came to him too much because he was afraid that he's now playing the rabbi, which a role that he doesn't want to play right. and I wonder when we look at the people and the at the person when we look on Dogen himself, how much he was struggling with these elements of his life
2: yeah yeah that that's um that's a fascinating part, his own self, uh, if, if everything is a mistake after mistake, uh, you know, what about his mistakes? <laughs> you know, the, And is he um, regretful and does he try to adapt and, and, and change? And yeah, he doesn't want to be boxed into the roles that people want to cast him in, whether it's his students or whether it is the uh, superiors in the government, which exerted a lot of control, especially in those days over all religious institutions in China and Japan. So... Uh, one of the fascinating parts about Dogen is that, again, he, um, he, he, he came into his own as a teacher around the same time that the uh, samurai was uh, becoming dominant in Japanese sociopolitics. And the samurai, you know, were interested in Zen because it was a way of discipline. And uh, some of them got so interested, including some of the shoguns, that they gave up being warriors and, and they had to regret uh, the violence that they committed and became monks. And so there's a fascinating story that uh, near the end of Dogen's life, he died when he was 53. And a a few years before that, he was invited by the uh, Shogun to away from, um, away from the area in Kyoto or in the mountains to uh, a new town that he had set up as a capital, which happens to be located near modern Tokyo. Uh, Tokyo was didn't exist at that point, but the Shogun had a kind of garrison town out in the Eastern part of uh, Japan. And he invited Dogen and he said, Dogen, you know, I, I admire your teaching, and I want to uh, create a new temple for you here. I'm going to build a fantastic, fabulous temple, and this and it, and it was built, and we can still see that temple. It's amazingly beautiful. You, can, uh, you know, you, tour, uh, you can tourists can visit it today uh, in the town of Kamakura, and uh, you know, um, and, and and Dogen um, had to face this choice: do we go? Does he go back to the mountain? temple that he had in Western Japan, Northwestern Japan, um, where he's only going to have a certain amount of influence because it's very secluded up there. Or does he go with the Shogun and you know, lead this whole new movement, but then he always has the Shogun looking over his shoulder. Um, so uh, th- 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 this scene has been played out in many uh, novels and uh, Kabuki plays in Japan. In, including in recent years. And uh, Dogen, of course, renounces the um, Shogun's offer and decides to return. So there's two uh, very interesting anecdotes about that. One is that the Shogun was so upset with Dogan that uh, he, he, um, uh, Dogen was sitting in a meditative position that the Shogun took out his sword and was about to swing it over Dogen's neck But the power of Dogen's meditation broke the sword. Uh, You know, one of those uh, wonderful legends. uh, And um, uh, but then Dogen went back to the mountains. He left behind one of his assistants to kind of uh, finish up the paperwork. And the the assistant returns and says, Dogen, you know, I, I took this gift that the shogun gave you. And Dogen said, I renounced the shogun. And so that monk who disobeyed him, they excommunicated. They not only excommunicated it, they uh, tore up his meditation seat, burned all his clothes (laughs) and said, you know, nobody ever will be associated again. Now, we don't know if either legend has much uh, historicality to it, but um, the, the independence to stand up to the Shogun, the strictness um, uh, against compromising your values, uh, to secular society. You know, those are powerful messages that I think people, you know, are interested in, in today's world.
1: Hmm, Thank you. So I'm coming to, to my last question. And the last question is, is, is in about, um, fascinating pages in, um, in page 188, which you called thinking, not thinking and non-thinking. So can you, I think it's deeply connected to maybe where, to this story in a way, but can you explain us um, a little bit about these distinctions?
2: Yeah. um, Well, you know, in Zen, there are these uh, uh, dozens and hundreds and maybe thousands of stories uh, that are referred to as koans that are kind of uh, paradoxical, absurd, puzzling. And Dogen um, loves those and quotes those and and gives his own interpretation. So one of them... um, the uh, teacher is sitting in upright in meditation and the chinese character for upright looks like um a mountain turned. the character for mountain turned upside down so it, it conveys this sense of like rising up sitting upright and the, um and the student says well um you know um what do you, what do you think about it? um and and the, he says i don't think about anything Basic. and the teacher said i don't think about anything he said well how do you think about not thinking about anything and he says non-thinking. So this has been debated many times, and you know I've read this. This is something for writing the new book. I had a, I read and reread, and I dug into a number of 18, 18th eighteenth-century commentaries. That was a very uh, prolific period in in uh, the traditional uh, sectarian tradition of analyzing uh, Dogen, and, and um, you know what what did the followers of his tradition say this meant, you know, what is thinking, not thinking, and non-thinking? Is it just some kind of mental game? Uh, a lot of times it's viewed kind of dialectically, like thinking is the first step, not thinking is the next step, and non-thinking transcends it. But when you read that passage carefully, uh, I, you know, Dogen makes a, a kind of simple um, and, you know, these are all kind of word games and semantics, but uh, it's, a, it's a really, really important point. So I'm glad you uh, focused on this, especially at the end of our discussion here. Um, what is non-thinking? Is it the opposite of thinking or is it if you add up thinking and not thinking and get non-thinking? You know, what, what is the relation? And he clearly says, no, there's no relation. These are just three words about the same thing we are always already non thinking because we're engaged in impressions and, you know, reflection on experience, anticipation, memory, non thinking is going on constantly with everything we we say and do, but we don't realize it. And we get lost in the calculation. We get lost in the, uh, the mind games and the word play. Um, so if we could go back to that basic state of alre- always already non-thinking, then we eliminate the gap between ideas and ac- actions. That's, that's the, I think, the, the key point to Dogen's meditation. involves the impermanence and the momentariness and the awareness of that moment. You know, there's still always a gap. Yeah.
1: So, Stephen, can we say, um, is the body is the, actually the first non-thinking because when I reflect on something that is happening to me, my body already engage with the thing that I'm thinking about. Right. So is it a body which in a way is the thing that I needed to learn to listen better because a body is already non-thinking but being there?
2: Yes, in a way it is. But then... If we set up a separation between body and mind, like one comes before the other, that can also be uh, problematic as well. So, I, I, you know, here I think Dogen is trying to recapture, again, what Shakyamuni Buddha, Buddha said. And um, he, he talks about the word, you know, if we, we kind of recreate what he was saying is, um, let's look at the word recognition. Recognition means cognition, again, to recognize something. So the point is that if we, you know, if we walk into a room or we meet somebody or we do something, we have this immense bodily, but not divorced from mental, but we have that bodily experience. And then we start thinking about it, but we've already, uh, you know, at that point we're kind of distanced from the original experience. Can we get back and occupy that original experience? So I think the way you described it is very well. And I don't think you were implying a duality with the mind, but, you know, you know, this is, um, uh, uh, this is a a point that Dogen gets to Um, doing and thinking. Is there a priority? Do we do before we think Um, body and mind, you know, we are a body, but the body is sensation. Sensations means the mind is acting on a sense object. So when we cognize again, the original cognition was a sensation or a perception. So the mind is already involved, but there is that immediate moment. But that moment is not a hundred percent clear. Um, there's always, you know, there's a saying that, uh, even a Buddha has a, has a, a two by four uh, bo- uh, board of plywood, mm-hmm. you know, in hurricane season, you go to home Depot and you get, um, you get the boards to take home and, you uh, uh, tack up on your window to, to prevent the wind from coming in. Even a Buddha kind of has a has a tunnel vision. Even a Buddha can't see, you know, completely around him. So that's where we make mistake after mistake. But if we can get into the level of what you call that bodily experience or the non-thinking level of experience and awaken that and cultivate that, that that's the key for doing it.
1: It's, it brings me so much humbling, like the feeling of humble, about how much it's complicated. And, and I think this is one of the many gifts that I got from learning. Um, it's not only reading, but learning your book about Dogen is the, um, the complications about life that bring us to, in a way, to become more humble and in a way much more simple because... Um, in a way, we don't need to do a lot. We, we At the end of the day, we need to be. Um, yeah. This right. is something, a feeling that I got with.
2: Yeah, well, thank you. And, um, t- uh, you know, o- over these last few months where we're staying in place and we're not, you know, traveling the same way and doing some of the same things, and, and the book came out and I was asked to give a couple of talks about it at Zen centers. And I said, you know, this is part of Dogen's message. I mean, you don't have to go anywhere. I mean, this is, I think, a silver lining. Hopefully, we can resume our, our travels and, and get back to normal um, soon enough. But for the moment, we can learn that lesson. And that, that I think um, Dogan wants us to learn that uh, uh, the actual travel is, is not the point. The point is to travel in your mind to uh, different perspectives and, and explore those, but come back to that non-thinking.
1: Steven, it was a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. And thank you so much for writing uh, Treasury of the True Dharma Eye. And I really, really want to, again, to, uh, to um, say Mazaltov for your new book about the poetry of um, Dogen. So hopefully we will meet soon again.
2: Okay. Thank you very much.